2: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo and this is the 156th edition of the program. Today is August 16th and this episode of the show is sponsored by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors and that includes Aaron Washington, Alexis Haas, Courtney Gadd, John Steinheimer, Julie Costantin. Maeve Kelly, Pauline Pavone, and Sean Knight. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, first, we'll talk about how conservatives have been dogpiling on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez lately in an effort to delegitimize her. So we'll talk about a CBS News journalist who published 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 an article comparing her to Sarah Palin, and also Trump supporters question whether or not she's smarter than a fifth grader. And Ben Shapiro got a little butthurt when she turned down an offer to debate him, but in the midst of a coordinated propaganda campaign against her, she still managed to get the progressive message across and called out the double standard frequently used against progressive policies. Also on this episode, Rashida Tlaib takes a strong stance against the Democratic Party is establishment, namely Nancy Pelosi. And while we're on the subject of Pelosi, she recently made a fool out of herself on MSNBC by bragging about the amount of big money she's able to raise, all while lamenting dark money and corruption on the Republican side. Additionally, DNC Chairman Tom Perez led an effort to reverse the DNC's two-month ban on contributions from the fossil fuel industry. We'll talk about that, and while we're still on the subject of corporate Democrats, Cory Booker accidentally advocated for Palestinian human rights, but backtracked immediately. And finally on this episode, after a year of silence, MSNBC finally talks about the U.S.-backed genocide Saudi Arabia is committing in Yemen. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the program criticizing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's policy positions hasn't worked out too well for Republicans thus far because they're quickly learning that the things she's talking about are actually overwhelmingly popular among the American electorate. So by trying to fearmonger about her policies, they're probably starting to realize that they were actually inadvertently promoting her and making her more popular overall. So what are they doing now to smear her since they're learning that it actually doesn't behoove them to focus on the policy substance Well, they're attacking her for one of her greatest strengths. They're trying to tell us that she's actually dumb and ditzy. She's stupid. That's literally their new coordinated effort to delegitimize Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And as a result, we get headlines like this from CBS News. Quote, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez becomes the Sarah Palin of the left. And yes, this is a real article. Now, the implication here is that she's dumb and ditzy, just like Sarah Palin. She can't speak on any specifics with regard to policy. And overall, she's naive. She's in over her head. And conservative commentator Michael Graham bases this argument off of the many, quote, gaffes that she's made since, since she won her primary. But what's ironic is that this author in writing this article, he makes numerous factual mistakes himself. He makes gaffes, if you will, himself. So, it's clear that he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about, but at the same time, that he's clearly ignorant. He's trying to explain to us just how dumb Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is. So, regardless... We'll hear him out and see what he has to say. So, he argues, if you're one of the many American progressives cheering on the performance of your new political rock star, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, look around. Many of the people cheering with you are Republicans. Ocasio-Cortez's 14-point victory over 10-term incumbent Democrat Joe Crowley was certainly impressive. Her performance since then? Not so much. The GOP have branded her the gaffe machine. Democrats on Capitol Hill are urging her to do things differently. And her stumbling media appearances have sparked references to the P word, Palin. Yes, it's that bad. First and foremost, if Republicans are in fact cheering her on with us, then keep doing that because you're unwittingly ushering in the demise of your side because regardless of how stupid you think she is, her policy positions are overwhelmingly popular. We've done this on the show where we've gone issue by issue and we've we've looked at the policies on her platform and we've showed how they have majority support among the American electorate. Now, that's with the exception of Abolish ICE but that's the only exception. Everything else she's talking about, like Medicare for All, a federal jobs guarantee, these are things that actually resonates with the American people because they see how these policies would actually have a positive impact on their lives. Now, second of all, The GOP or really anyone from the right doesn't get to label anyone on the left as a gaffe machine when Donald Trump is the standard bearer of the Republican Party currently and when their last standard bearer was George W. Bush. So you had the political equivalents of dumb and dumber, lead the Republican Party, and now you guys want to call out who's stupid on the left? You guys don't get to do that. Sorry, (laughs) you lost the authority to judge who's stupid on the left. When your side keeps electing dumb fucking presidents. So you don't get to do that anymore. And third, the author links to an article where Democrats on Capitol Hill allegedly told Ocasio-Cortez to, quote, do things differently as a result of numerous gaffes. But when you actually follow the link, it goes to an article from Mike Lillis of The Hill. And in this article... It's about corporate Democrats criticizing Ocasio-Cortez specifically because she endorsed their progressive primary challengers over them, but this author was hoping that you wouldn't actually follow the link and read the article because it in no way proved the point he was trying to make. The goal here was to get you to think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is so stupid that even Democrats on Capitol Hill are saying that she's stupid. But in actuality, that article is about them being butthurt that she's criticizing not only them, but endorsing their progressive primary challengers. So the article doesn't prove what you what you think it proves, but certainly I think that he is aware of this. He just was hoping that you would be lazy and not click on the link. But I actually clicked on the link. It doesn't prove what you wanted to prove, but nonetheless, I do want to get to the specific gaffes because he cites six in particular and out of all of these gaffes there's only one that's actually a real gaffe so he states in the short six weeks since her upset primary win ocasio cortez claimed unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs so i'll grant him this one that's a gaffe because clearly she misspoke i think overall what she was talking about is how you know everyone, you know, they might have jobs, but they're lower paying jobs. So the un- unemployment rate, generally speaking, that's that's not a good gauge of just how well the working class in America is doing. But she didn't make that point. That's not what she said. So sure, that's a gaffe, but everything else, definitely not a gaffe. And in fact, in shocking some of these quote gaffes up to gaffes, it really shows how ignorant the author is himself. So he states that One of her gaffes was that she referred to Israel's, quote, occupation of Palestine and struggled to explain what that meant. This one is not a gaffe. In fact, referring to Israel's occupation of Palestine as such... That's not even up for debate. In fact, you don't have to take my word for it. This is what the UN said. In its Resolution 2334, the Security Council reaffirmed that the establishment by Israel of settlements in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967, including East Jerusalem, had no legal validity and constituted a flagrant violation under international law and a major obstacle to the achievement of the two-state solution and a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace. So her not being able to articulate that doesn't qualify as a gaffe if she actually admits that she's not an expert on this particular subject it would have been a gaffe if she tried to answer the question while not actually knowing what she was saying and ended up saying something that was incorrect but she said that she wasn't an expert and by referring to israel's quote occupation of palestine i mean that's not a gaffe that's a fact now let's go on to another gaffe He states that she claimed the upper middle class doesn't exist anymore. So even though this isn't technically true, I wouldn't characterize this as a gaffe because she was clearly speaking to the fact that the middle class in America has in fact been disappearing over the last two decades. Also, he states that she wrongly accused her defeated Democratic opponent of plotting a third-party challenge against her. Again, this is not a gaffe, it's a fact. Joe Crowley is not only remaining on the ballot under the banner of the Working Families Party after they asked him to take the necessary steps to remove himself, but he also refuses to endorse someone as a successor to him. So again, these are not gaffes, but we have two more here. Quote, she also compared the costs of the GOP tax cuts less than $2 trillion over the next 10 years to the costs of her Medicare for All approach, estimated at around $32 trillion over a decade. This is also not a gaffe, and in fact, it shows how uninformed the author is as he ironically compares Ocasio-Cortez to Sarah Palin. While Medicare for All does technically cost $32 trillion, according to a Koch-funded study, That's actually less than the cost of our current healthcare system. So, her Medicare for All plan saves money overall... So, because you didn't know that and because you're uninformed, that doesn't mean that her saying something you didn't know is a gaffe. It's a gaffe on you to call that a gaffe. Now, also, he states, to make matters worse, she added this during a CNN interview. Americans have the sticker shock of healthcare as it is, and what we're also not talking about is why aren't we incorporating the cost of all the funeral expenses of those who died because they can't afford access to healthcare. That is part of the cost of our system. Yes, what about all the savings we'll have under Medicare for All once people stop dying? Again, this is not a gaffe. In fact, this is actually a really good point that she brought up because when we're talking about the sticker shock of healthcare, people do die if they have a medical emergency and can't afford healthcare. And the cost of funeral expenses is something that directly results from our predatory for-profit system. And it's not like she was implying that people would suddenly become invincible and stop dying the moment we move to a Medicare for All system. But obviously, the point she was trying to make is that people will no longer die unnecessarily if they have a medical emergency but don't have health care. But of course, he's not going to interpret anything that she says charitably because the whole goal of this article was to smear and delegitimize her. So let's recap. Out of a total of six gaffes that he cites, Only one of them is technically a gaffe, two if you want to be super kind about her middle class comment. But she was still making a broader overall point, that's true. So the irony here is that as this author tries to frame her as this political idiot who's comparable to Sarah Palin and ditzy and dumb, this idiot is only chalking these things up to gaffes because he's uninformed himself but yet he has the nerve to call her stupid? Get the fuck out of here. I mean, again, this is why Republicans are such clowns. They have someone like Donald Trump as the leader of their party, but yet they're going to go out of their way to criticize people on the left for being dumb. I mean, the hypocrisy is overwhelming, but nonetheless, he kind of goes on to say this about her gaffes overall and the impact it's having on her credibility. Ocasio-Cortez's gaffes have become so frequent and harmful that a cottage industry has risen up on the right to trumpet them. She's become a staple of talk radio and clips of her less-than-flattering moments frequent Fox News, websites like the Washington Free Beacon, and the Daily Caller delight in highlighting the latest misstep from the new poster person for American progressivism. And you say that they're all attacking her because she's making gaffes and because she's dumb, but what's clear to people with brains is that they're attacking her not because there's merit to their claims but because this is a strategy for them since they can't criticize her policies since her ideas are popular and since fear-mongering about socialism doesn't really work as well as it did before and since she's an incredibly well-spoken, clearly intelligent individual... They're targeting her intelligence because it's actually one of her biggest strengths. If they all dogpile on her at once in this coordinated effort to convince ordinary Americans that this bright young woman is as dumb as Sarah Palin, then they're hoping it will pay off. This is a strategy for them. There's no merit to their claims. It might have an influence. It might convince some people. But do you want to know the electorate or the portion of the electorate in America who's probably less concerned with a politician's intelligence? Republicans. Because, again, who's your president right now? Terrific. Bigly. You have a fucking idiot, a village idiot, as your standard bearer, and the last president was George W. Bush. (laughs) So, I don't think intelligence is something that Republican Party voters are too concerned about, and really, if the target audience is them, then I don't think this is going to be very effective, and furthermore... Regardless of how stupid you think Ocasio-Cortez is, the fact remains that her policy ideas, well, they're just popular. And that's why they are doing everything in their power to attack her in any way that they think is going to be effective and resonate with ordinary Americans. And when this strategy ultimately fails, when they can't convince people that this clearly intelligent woman is stupid, what are they going to do? They're going to pivot to a different strategy because this is what right-wingers do. But this is them really making it clear that they're scared shitless of her. They don't know what to do with her because they can't criticize the policies because she's too popular there. They try to criticize her intelligence because that's one of her greatest strengths. And when she speaks, she speaks with clarity most of the time. And so they try to go for that, but they have nothing. And I love it. I love watching them become unhinged. At the thought of a young progressive putting them all in their places, it's great. But I do want to get to how he closes this article, because he actually argues that her influence is already starting to wane, and he does this by propping up Hillary Clinton. Not even kidding. This is what he says. Last month, she and her progressive mentor, Bernie Sanders, campaigned hard for progressives Cori Bush and Brent Walder in the Kansas Democratic primary, both lost. In a Politico article titled, Down Goes Socialism, Bill Schur notes that it was Hillary Clinton and not Ocasio-Cortez, whose endorsement carried the most weight in Michigan last week. Clinton's late robocall in support of Haley Stevens helped take Stevens from second place in the polls to an election night victory in the suburban 11th district a top Democratic target, while Feroz Saad, backed by Ocasio-Cortez, placed fourth. In fact, Democratic establishment candidates have been on a roll since the Ocasio-Cortez upset. Could it be that her high-profile missteps are convincing candidates to remain more moderate? That the net result of Ocasio-Cortez's candidacy is fewer progressive candidates in November? Um, no. And you're lying. You're being disingenuous here. You're not talking about the candidates she endorsed that actually won. Sarah Smith, James Thompson, Rashida Tlaib. And when it comes to the odds of who's going to win, well, if you're trying to argue that Hillary Clinton has more influence in politics than Ocasio-Cortez— When it comes to congressional races, the candidate with the most money almost always wins, and Ocasio-Cortez has remained principled, and she's exclusively endorsed candidates that don't take corporate-backed money, whereas Hillary Clinton has only endorsed corporate-backed candidates. So, generally speaking, these types of attacks, these ad hominem attacks, which are particularly disgusting, I'm not even mad here. I think that this is really amusing because it's clear that the right, they're grasping for straws. They don't know how to deal with someone this young, this intelligent, this popular. So they try to go after one of her greatest strengths, because that would be a way to kind of bring her down a few notches, really to kind of call into question her intelligence by highlighting all these gaffes. But in actuality, she's made a couple of gaffes. I mean, come on. The propaganda wing of the Republican Party, Fox News, has now decided that their main criticism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will be that she's unintelligent. Bigly. Now, I personally find this strategy pretty interesting, given that they reliably and constantly do propaganda for Donald Trump, who is the leader of the Republican Party and quite literally the dumbest president in American history. But nonetheless, they're going to tell us how stupid our favorite politician is. Here's what they say.
3: Democratic
4: darling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez taken to task getting fact-checked for gaffes
5: like these. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlement. I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. Unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. Capitalism has not always existed in the world and it will not always exist in the world. Medicare for all is actually much more, is, is actually much cheaper than the current system that we pay right now.
0: Really? Well, the Washington Post revealed that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's gaffes are not just embarrassing, they're actually wrong. The New York Socialist firing back, claiming yes, Sexism. That's right. Social media stars and Trump supporters Diamond and Silk join us now to react. Welcome to you both, ladies. Thanks for being here. So a socialist from the Bronx says a bunch of crazy stuff that she clearly doesn't know enough about. The Washington Post fact checks her. They always do that to conservatives. They finally do it once to a socialist. They find at least five claims to be false. She says, you can't say that about me. That's sexist. What do you make of that?
3: Well, see, that's what they do. And this is what Democrats do. First, they play the race card. Uh And when that don't work, now they play the sexist card. That's what Uh Hillary Clinton did when she said, oh, uh, women didn't want to vote for her. Mm. But here's the deal. This young lady, you know, I wonder if she's smarter than a fifth grader. I wish she would debate a fifth grader. And let's see how smart she is. But what the views that she's feeling, this is the Democratic mindset. Poverty, slavery, Uh um, somebody to have their uh, uh, finger to control you robin peter to pay paul right this is their mindset yeah and listen she is like the gift that keeps on giving to the republican party we want her to keep talking because we're listening don't shut up (laughs) yeah
2: so first of all the gaffes that they list here are just comical because most of what she said are not gaffes at all they're true so they took issue with her saying that capitalism hasn't always existed and it won't always exist that's just the statement that's half true and half highly probable and the same is true for other types of political institutions throughout history we've seen politics and institutions and forms of government change and evolve so it's it's probably the case that since capitalism is such a flawed and predatory system there's probably going to be a different system that comes along one day that will replace capitalism. If you study political science, you know that nothing is static. Everything in politics is is dynamic. Everything changes. So, it's really not a controversial statement if you actually know what you're talking about. But this is Fox News, so they took offense to it because they worship capitalism. She uh she also was criticized by them by saying that Medicare for all will cost less than our current healthcare system. That's a fact if you take the word of a Koch-funded study. The Mercatus Center found that our current system actually costs more than a Medicare for All system. See, in any other instance, they take what the Koch brothers say as gospel, but since the Koch brothers funded a study that actually yields results that they don't like, well, all of a sudden, they want to challenge it. And they're chalking what Ocasio-Cortez said in citing said study up to a gaffe, which is hilarious to me. Now, the Fox host implied that Ocasio-Cortez stated that fact-checking her is sexist. But she didn't say that. And I actually don't know what quote in question they're talking about because she never explicitly said, if you fact-check me, you're sexist, because of course that would be ridiculous. Now, one point that I think maybe they're referring to is that she invoked gender when she mentioned the double standard with regard to how she's being treated for making small mistakes compared to how Jim Inhofe was treated when he idiotically thought he could disprove climate change by bringing a fucking snowball to the Senate floor. Now, we all just saw how they responded to Ocasio-Cortez's small gaffes, but this is how the same show, Fox and Friends, responded when Jim Inhofe made his gaff.
6: So it's very, very cold out, very unseen.
1: So here, Mr. President, catch this.
2: That's awesome.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Well, that's Oklahoma Senator Jim Inhofe using a snowball on the floor of the Senate to make his point about global climate change. The whole country seems to be blanketed in the white stuff. This, during global warming. It's pretty cold out there. Here in in Oklahoma, there's even snow on the ground. So, so Senator, apart from the temperature or even the climate, I mean, the questions outstanding are, What is causing change to the climate? Is it actually human activity doing so? And is there anything we can do to reverse it? Why isn't there a greater public
2: debate on these questions? Why do they try to shut down debate? Let me tell you why there's not a debate now, because the debate really is over. So Jim Inhofe could do one of the dumbest things ever on the Senate floor, and they'll bring him on and coddle him when he receives criticism and call him awesome. But if Ocasio-Cortez admits that she's not an expert on a particular issue, she's the biggest idiot ever, according to them. See why this is a double standard and how she's right to call it out? And regardless of whether or not Ocasio-Cortez should have invoked gender or not, let's not pretend that Republicans don't also do this because in trying to push Gina Haspel down our throats, what did Donald Trump do? He invoked gender when he was trying to get her confirmed as the new CIA director when in actuality, none of us cared about her gender. Bloody Gina Haspel committed crimes against humanity, but Donald Trump wanted to distract us from that by invoking gender and especially if you criticize israel you're automatically anti-semitic so they don't get to denounce identity politics while their side still does it constantly you don't get to do that so, you know, it's just more hypocrisy. But getting to Diamond and Silk and what they said, now for the record, I don't know which one is Diamond and I don't know which one is Silk. So going forward, I will just refer to them as Dilk. This is Dilk 1 and this is Dilk 2 because that, that's just easiest for me. So Dilk 1 said, this young lady, you know, I wonder if she's smarter than a fifth grader. You wonder if she's smarter than a fifth grader. Do you really, let me ask you this, Dilk One, you really want to talk about the intelligence of politicians as passionate Donald Trump supporters, probably the dumbest president in American history who literally speaks at a fourth grade level? Are you positive that you actually want to start talking about the intelligence of politicians we both support? Because I can assure you that anyone you support on the right is going to be exponentially more stupid than anyone on the left. I mean, take the dumbest... Republicans, um, Donald Trump, Louis Gohmert, and compare them to the dumbest Democrats like Joe Manchin. They're still leagues ahead of the Republican in terms of intelligence, and Joe Manchin is a pretty dumb guy. But regardless, he's still a lot smarter than Louis Gohmert. So, I mean, after stumping for Donald Trump, now you have the nerve to claim or question, rather if Ocasio-Cortez is smarter than a 5th grader when the person who you support and do propaganda for doesn't even speak at a 5th grade level. I mean, if if you truly want to go this route and criticize the intelligence of politicians, I'm 100% down for that game because I can guarantee you it's not going to go too well for you. Now, as Dilk proceeded to talk about how stupid Ocasio-Cortez was, they went on to make a point that absolutely made no sense. So, I believe it was Dilk 1- who said the views that she's spewing, this is the democratic mindset. Poverty, slavery, somebody to have their finger to control you. Now, if you're going to criticize somebody else's intelligence, you should try and at least make an attempt, really, to refrain from making word salad yourself, because that made no fucking sense whatsoever. None. And she said this of Ocasio-Cortez. Listen, she's like the gift that keeps on giving to the Republican Party. We want her to keep talking. Well, there's one thing that we both agree on. I definitely want her to keep talking. Because the policy she's talking about, regardless if you want to admit it or not, regardless if this fact causes you to have cognitive dissonance, they're actually overwhelmingly popular. And if there's anything that you should know specifically, Dilk, it's that if someone who's really, really dumb keeps talking, that's not necessarily going to turn off the American people. Bigly. But lucky for us, Ocasio-Cortez actually isn't dumb. She's actually very smart. And the thing with right-wingers is that they are doing everything in their power to delegitimize someone who's clearly a force in politics right now. So if she doesn't speak with the utmost specificity every single time she speaks, and if she doesn't claim to be knowledgeable of every single political issue ever— then they're going to pounce on her at every opportunity that they have. That's what right-wingers are trying to do because they clearly see her as a threat to their political success. Now, I do want to share what Ocasio-Cortez said in response to all of the criticism that she's receiving because I really think that she, she made an excellent point. She states... At yesterday's town hall, someone asked how I, as just a human, am dealing with the hate, subconscious bias, and criticism. I've been told my whole life I'm not up to snuff. Folks, always doubt my worthiness until I get it done. Tune it out. Stay focused and positive. Keep pushing. And I cannot tell you how much I love this response. Because she's aware of the criticism. But I think that she, she's grown up being underestimated. So she works well under pressure like this, and it's not going to get to her. It's not going to get her down. She's proving that she is a force and she's becoming one of the most popular politicians in the country. So regardless of how vocal Republicans get about just how stupid they think she is, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what she's saying about policies well, that resonates with the American people. Americans want Medicare for All, tuition-free public colleges and university, a federal jobs guarantee, which has a majority of support in all 50 states, including red states. So you can try to delegitimize her by being laser-focused on every single gaffe she makes, but the problem is that You've kind of already revealed your cards here. You you like stupid politicians. So, if we follow your logic, given how dumb Donald Trump is, then you should be loving what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has to say. But we all know that she's not stupid, and you hate her because she's a threat to you and your side. So, um, you know, they can keep trying to criticize her, and Republicans can compare her to the Sarah Palin, of the or call her the Sarah Palin of the left, rather. Um, it doesn't matter because the policies are what matters to Americans. And at the end of the day, she's giving Americans concrete policy ideas that will actually improve their lives. And that's a winning strategy. Right-wing political commentator Ben Shapiro decided that lately, he just hasn't been getting enough attention. And as a result, this prompted him to challenge Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to a debate. And he said that in the event she agreed to a one-hour debate, he would contribute $10,000 to her campaign. Now, before we get into the actual substance here of the story, as an intellectual, I would have expected Ben Shapiro to know that offering someone $10,000 constitutes a campaign finance violation because, as we all know, the federal limit is $2,700 and seeing that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't have a super PAC, well, giving her $10,000 is illegal. So, not only is she legally prohibited from accepting $10,000 from you, She could actually be penalized in the event she accepted it. Now, the fact that Ben Shapiro didn't know this is a little bit striking to me, but I think he probably knew it and, again, just wanted attention. But her answer essentially was no. Now, she didn't respond directly to him by turning him down, but she responded indirectly by chalking up his offer to catcalling. She said, Just like catcalling, I don't owe a response to unsolicited requests from men with bad intentions. And also like catcalling, for some reason, they feel entitled to one. And because Ben Shapiro is so important, the New York Times decided to write an article talking about her response and how she said no and likened his offer to catcalling. And of course, this ended up garnering a lot of attention within conservative circles, and a lot of them decided to jump on the bandwagon here in hopes that they might be able to capitalize on Ocasio-Cortez's fame in the way that Ben Shapiro did by also challenging her to a debate as well. And subsequently, Candace Owens decided to double Ben Shapiro's offer by offering 20000 to debate her, and then Charlie Kirk decided to jump in and offer her $100,000 to any charity of her choice, and then Dave Rubin- oh, n- never mind I don't actually know if he raised the stakes because he blocked me. The point is that these right-wing ideologues, they felt entitled to get a response from her, they felt entitled to be able to debate her, but she doesn't owe you shit. She doesn't owe you a goddamn thing. And it never behooves the left to debate conservatives in the first place because that implies that certain ideas are debatable when they're not. We shouldn't have to debate you guys about whether or not anthropogenic climate change is real or about whether or not people without healthcare should die if they can't afford it. And furthermore, these aren't even your authentic opinions. They're what your financers at Learn Liberty and PragerU pay you to say and think. And even if these were your genuine, authentic feelings on policy, well... These aren't things that are up for debate. And furthermore, even if she decided to debate you, what would be the point of that? Because we all know exactly what this would come down to. Your response to anything she said would essentially be this. Venezuela. Venezuela.
7: Venezuela.
2: Venezuela. 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 But because Alexandria Castro cortez decided to not debate Ben Shapiro, I don't know why, but there was this gigantic media kerfuffle over nothing, really. Like, I don't, I don't even get how this got coverage in The New York Times. But nonetheless, that's, you know, that's the uh, state of politics that we are living in. And uh, Ben Shapiro appeared on Fox News and he talked about this and he was clearly a little bit butthurt that she refused to debate him. I would love to have a real conversation with you
6: about the issues. You've noted you think Republicans are afraid to debate you or talk to you or discuss the issues with you. Not only am I eager to discuss the issues with you, I'm willing to offer $10,000 to your campaign today.
7: Wow. All right. First, the challenge, and then the rejection. Conservative commentator Ben Shapiro calling for a debate with Democratic socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He wants to debate her. He wants to debate her on the issues. The New York congressional candidate take an issue with Ben Shapiro tweeting out just like catcalling, I don't owe a response to unsolicited requests from men with bad intentions. And also like catcalling, for some reason, they feel entitled to one. Whoa, all right. We called uh, Ocasio Cortez and we asked her to come on the show. She has yet to respond, but you know who did respond? None other than Ben Shapiro for his first interview since that tweet. Ben, it's good to see you.
6: Good to see you. Making first of a lot all, of I, news I just here, want to know. Right? Quickly. She, she's
7: making news with you here. say Go ahead, please.
6: Yeah, qu- quick comment. First of all, how dare you catcall Alexandra Ocasio Cortez by inviting her on your show? I mean, how dare you? That's <laughs> sexism in action right there.
7: Yeah, apparently. You know, what do you think of that, though? I mean, to use that term, which, um, you know, that's just to, to remind everyone, a woman's walking down the street and someone, you know, whistles or something, that's cat calling. Uh, how is what you did, asking her to have an intellectual debate on the actual issues, how is that in any way relevant or similar uh, to a cat call? <laughs>
6: Uh, catcalling must be very weird in Queens. I don't know if they're like construction workers standing on street corners and shouting to women, "Hey, baby, want to have an hour-long public conversation about trade policy and the vagaries of Viennese economics versus neo-Marxist economics?" It, it gets it gets strange in her district, apparently. But again, this is this is so many folks on the left jumping to a sort of intersectional defense in which. Anybody who requests a discussion or debate must be evil by their very nature, right? I'm a man, therefore I'm catcalling her, even though as an Orthodox Jew, I have never catcalled a woman in my entire life. Uh, It's catcalling because I guess if I suggest that I want to have a conversation, I'm demanding a response. Well, every request is a request. All she had to say here was, nah, that would have been fine. I mean, she's got that prerogative, but she she goes around talking about how—
7: I mean, that's part of a right, platform, absolutely. right? Everybody's a victim, and, and, you know, we need to take as much money as we can from everybody else to redistribute it. That's what socialism is about. So is she just playing that victim card?
6: No question. And, and the fact that she feels the necessity to go to this particular card, right, to, to play the I'm a, I'm a female, and therefore I'm being victimized, this is like catcalling, the fact she goes there, instead of just saying, you know what, I'm not interested in debate, the reason she didn't say the latter is because she didn't want to look like she was afraid. Uh, and she's been going around on, on the internet suggesting that people like Ali Stuckey are afraid of her when they make satire about her, or that people on the right are deeply afraid of her perspective. And then the minute that somebody says, you know what, I, I'm willing to have a discussion or a debate with you. And not only that, just to make it worth your time, I'll give money to charity or your campaign. Yeah. Then it's all of a sudden catcalling if, if you suggest such a thing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah,
2: so clearly he felt like her goal was to demonize him and try to portray him as a sexist pig for likening his debate offer to catcalling. But that's... Like, you need to calm down, Ben. I don't think that that was what she was trying to do at all. I think that what she was trying to do in kind of giving you a fuck you with, uh, by likening your offer to catcalling is she was trying to speak to the entitlement of your debate offer and how you felt entitled to a response to her. Who the fuck are you that you're entitled to a response... From Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. You're not her political opponent. You're not running against her. Why do you feel as if she is obligated to respond once you put that offer out there? It's nonsense. This smug sense of self importance is what she was speaking to in likening your offer to catcalling. And I think she probably did that to rub you the wrong way and piss you off. And clearly it worked because you were clearly butthurt here. And in my opinion, I really think that debates are useless. Unless it's debates between political opponents running for office or academics, like into intellectuals. And I'm talking about real intellectuals, individuals who do, who are in academia and publish things in journals and peer reviewed journals for a living. That's debates that I think are actually, they make a little bit more sense. But if she were to debate you, what would that do? People watching the debate are just hoping that she dunks on you and you dunk on her. And after the debate there'd be like a hundred videos talking about how you destroyed her, and then there'd be conversely on the other side, a hundred videos talking about how she destroyed you. And at the end of the day, everyone would just come out of this debate thinking, oh, my person won when In actuality, they weren't trying to gauge it objectively and learn from the debate, which is the whole point of debates to begin with. So I don't even think that debates are worthwhile at all for the left with regard to right-wingers. And as someone who runs a media company that profits off of views and clicks, it would serve Ben Shapiro much more than Ocasio-Cortez, even if he lost, because the debate would undoubtedly drive views and clicks to his website. But with all of that being said, since Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens all decided to jump in and up the ante, and since... This clearly got Ben Shapiro views and clicks, even if she didn't attend the debate. I thought, you know, Mike, there's got to be something more that you could be doing to drive views and clicks yourself. So I decided to jump into this debate as well and also up the ante, and I personally am challenging Ben Shapiro to go head-to-head in a game of Mario Kart, and I will offer him $9.99, and look... I'll be fair here. I'll let him choose the mode. It could be race or battle. He can choose the course. The only stipulation is that it does have to be on the Nintendo Switch version because that's that's the version that I own. And you know, of course, I had to flex a little bit on Twitter since I made this offer and show off my Bernie Me and how... I don't play around when it comes to Mario Kart. I will fucking destroy anyone who wants to step up to me. But expectedly, there's been a media blackout of my offer to Ben Shapiro, and even though progressive Beth and Alien on Twitter graciously offered to double my offer, well, I still haven't heard back from Ben Shapiro. So if Ben Shapiro is entitled to a debate with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, why am I not entitled to a race with Ben Shapiro? it's almost as if he knows that he has nothing to gain from this and I'm only challenging him to erase to gain attention. Hmm. I've long maintained that there's always been this double standard when it comes to the how do we pay for it question, and I think that for the most part, progressives have done a sufficient job at answering this question, but the mere fact that we're being asked this question to begin with it's incredibly frustrating because when politicians propose tax cuts or they increase the military budget by billions of dollars, nobody, not a single political pundit on the left or the right or the center, asks those people how they're going to pay for never-ending wars or tax cuts for the rich. It's only when we're talking about Medicare for All, tuition-free public colleges and universities that they invoke this idiotic question. So, somebody finally went on mainstream media And called out this double standard and that individual is alexandria ocasio-cortez who actually made the exact point i just made in response to chris cuomo of cnn asking her how she's gonna pay for medicare for all
1: man do you want to spend a lot of my tax money on these proposals that you and bernie and others have medicare for all college tuition maybe even housing Uh, that the green new deal that you have, it is all very expensive, especially on the single payer side Mm. and that it gives people sticker shock. Mm. Even in Bernie's home state, they got sticker shock. They couldn't get it done Mm. in his state because Mm. of how expensive it is. And that was an 11% increase in taxes, nine to 11%. Even that was too much for people. How do you pay? How do you sell it?
5: Mm. So, first of all, the thing that we need to realize is people talk about the sticker shock of Medicare for All. They do not talk about the sticker shock of our of the cost of our existing system. You know, in a Koch brothers-funded store uh, you know, study, if any study is going to try to be a little bit slanted, it would be one funded by the Koch brothers. It shows that Medicare for All is actually much more, is is actually much cheaper than the current system that we pay right now. And let's not forget that the reason that the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act is because they ruled that even Each of these monthly payments that everyday Americans make is a tax and so while it may not seem like we pay that tax on April 15th we pay it every single month or we do pay a tax season if we don't buy uh, you know these plans off of the exchange so we're paying for this system we Americans have the sticker shock of health care as it is and what we're also not talking about is why aren't we incorporating the cost of all the funeral expenses of those who die because they can't afford access to health care that is part of the cost of our system why don't we talk about the cost of reduce productivity because of people who need to go on disability, because of people who are not able to participate in our economy, because they're have ac- because they are having issues like diabetes or, or they don't have access to the health care that they need. I think at the end of the day, we see that this is not a pipe dream. Every other developed nation in the world does this. Why can't America? And that is the question that we need to ask. We have done these things before. We write unlimited blank checks for war. We write a two trillion, we just wrote a two trillion dollar check for that tax cut, the GOP tax cut and nobody asked those folks how are they going to pay for it. So my question is why is it that our pockets are only empty when it comes to education and health care for our kids? Why are pockets only empty when we talk about 100% renewable energy that is going to save this planet and allow our children to thrive? We only have empty pockets when it comes to the morally right things to do. But when it comes to uh, tax cuts for billionaires and when it comes to unlimited war, we seem to be able to to invent that num- that money very easily. And to me, it belies a lack of moral priorities that people have right now, especially the Republican Party.
2: So what she did there was powerful. It was a point that's so important that the mainstream media needed to hear it. But unfortunately, I think it's probably going to be the case that it goes in one ear and out the other, because even if it's the case that this absurd double standard keeps coming up and pundits keep asking progressive politicians how they're going to pay for Medicare for all, they're still not going to ask this question to Republicans when they propose tax cuts for the rich or every time the military budget goes up. So even if she made a sound argument against this double standard, it's probably not going to make a difference in reality. But at the same time, it's still important that she made this point. And I want to read the quote back to you. Even if we all just saw what she said, she made such a powerful point. I want to read it back because I really was impressed by her. Every other developed nation in the world does this. Why can't America? We write unlimited checks for war. We just wrote a two-trillion-dollar check for the tax cut, the GOP tax cut, and nobody asked those folks how are they going to pay for it. So my question is, why is it that our pockets are only empty when it comes to education and healthcare for our kids? Why are our pockets only empty when we talk about 100% renewable energy that is going to save this planet and allow our children? To thrive, we only have empty pockets when it comes to the morally right thing to do, but when it comes to tax cuts for billionaires or unlimited war, we seem to be able to invent that money very easily, and to me, it belies a lack of moral priorities that people have right now, especially the Republican Party. That's exactly it. And this is always my question to conservatives because I talked about this when the uh, Daily Caller journalist went to an Ocasio-Cortez rally and she said it's really easy, you know, to get caught up in this this idea that our children deserve healthcare and education until you kind of stop and, you know, uh, get a dose of reality and think, well, how are we going to pay for this? Why are you allowing government to spend your money on death and destruction but not on healthcare? Every single month whether you like it or not, tax dollars are going to come out of our paychecks. It's going to come out. Why aren't you demanding that you get a return on that investment? Why aren't you demanding that those tax dollars actually benefit you? Why is that such an absurd thing to do? For us to ask that our tax dollars not go to more wars and to actually fund Healthcare, things that would help Americans. I mean, that's the whole point of tax dollars, right? We pay tax. We pay into public services, public goods. That's supposed to help us. But conservatives are perfectly fine with tax dollars going to wars. And I find it absurd. The minute we start talking about paying for Medicare for all, they they can't handle it. People in mainstream media melt down. Look. These are rich people that don't know what ordinary Americans deal with. Chris Cuomo can talk about, oh, this sticker shock, I don't want to pay for, you know, the, I don't want to have my taxes increased to pay for health care. I don't know if that's his position, but that was certainly implied in his framing of the question. But he's not calling out the government spending millions of dollars to drop bombs on the Middle East and North Africa. He's not concerned at all with us sending dollars and weapons to saudi arabia to commit genocide in yemen he's not concerned with that it's only when healthcare comes up that's when they start talking about the cost and how we're going to pay for it it really does show how morally bankrupt we are how ass backwards our priorities are as a nation and it shows just how effective right-wing propaganda has been at brainwashing american citizens if we're at a place where we're only questioning how we can afford healthcare and education for our children, but never talking about the cost of war, both monetarily and in terms of human life, there's something fundamentally wrong with American political discourse. Fundamentally wrong. And what's the poison that caused people to think this way? It's right-wing propaganda propaganda. We're all being bombarded with right-wing propaganda. They have these right-wing talking points that our friends and family parrot. And since it's repeated so much, nobody really stops to think, wait, this is a really fucked up way of thinking. Why are we questioning how we pay for Medicare for All, but they just upped military spending again? We're spending more than $700 billion on the military. That's what, 60% of our discretionary budget? Why is it okay for us to constantly increase military spending, but the minute we talk about raising taxes a little bit on the rich to pay for Medicare for all, it's absurd. Our priorities are so ass-backwards in America, and it's 100% due to right-wing propaganda. So the fact that Ocasio-Cortez went on mainstream media and made this point and called out this double standard... That's really powerful. I don't think it's going to have that much of an effect unless we all start making this point and we kind of push back with, with equal ferocity against right-wing propaganda. But at the same time, just to hear her say it was really refreshing. Um, and I was very happy that she made this point. Nancy Pelosi recently appeared on the latest episode of MSNBC's AM Joy for an interview with establishment loyalist Jonathan Chate, and she made the case for herself as to why she should remain in a leadership position within the Democratic Party. And as you're going to see here... Her argument was astoundingly hypocritical.
0: These are the 51 people who were surveyed who are candidates. 42 of them are Democratic nominees. Nine of them are incumbents who have said that they will not support you in the run for speaker. Um, Well, let me just say, first of all, one, I mean, why not, if the Democrats take back the House, give up the gavel?
8: Well, first of all, let me just say this, and I know NBC leaders. has been on a jag of this. This is one of their priorities to undermine my prospects as speaker, but putting that aside, the I have not asked one person for a vote. I haven't asked a candidate or an incumbent for a vote. What's important, and I know better than anybody how important it is for us to win this election because I see up close and personal what the Republicans and this president are doing. I do not think our opponents should select the leaders of our party, the Republicans, are spending millions, tens of millions of dollars against me because they're afraid of me because I outraise them in, in the political arena, because I outsmart them at the negotiating table, and because I'm a woman who is going to be a seat at that table. And that, for me, is very important. If Hillary Clinton had won and had the sat at the head of that table, be different. But I, I'm not yielding. Uh, I'm not yielding that.
0: You said that it's. Part of the reason is because you're a woman, and in doing my research, your favorable rating among Democrats actually surprised me. Given given the scuttlebutt, it's fifty five percent. Let me just
8: say this: I have made some very powerful enemies, uh, challenging the fossil fuel industry in terms of clean air, clean water, food safety, and the rest. Wall Street with Dodd Frank reform, healthcare. Uh, uh, bringing in all of the anti-government uh, ideologues, uh, name any subject, whether it's the environment, whether it's woman's right to choose, whether it's gun safety, whether it's immigration fairness and the rest. So there's big money out there against me. The more they make this point though, the more money I raise. If you see their letters, their fundraising letters, they say we have to stop her because she's just a, uh, a force that is amassing the resources to win this election and that is what i will continue to do and they only help me when they go after me
2: so first of all i found it really interesting that she actually got defensive and took a jab at nbc itself for even bringing up the fact that there are people within the democratic party that don't want to support her if she does in fact decide to run for a leadership position again that was interesting you can tell that it's getting to her and that we need to keep the pressure up because she is hearing criticism. Now, another thing she said here that rubbed me the wrong way she said, I do not think our opponents should select the leaders of our party. The Republicans are spending millions, tens of millions against me because they're afraid of me, because I outraise them in the political arena, I outsmart them at the negotiating table, and because I'm a woman who's gonna have a seat at that table. And that for me is very important. If Hillary Clinton had won, and sat at the head of the table, it'd be different. So first of all, she's basically saying that, well, you know, since Republicans don't like me, should we really give Republicans what they want? But she's missing the point. Republicans don't care about you, Nancy. They're featuring you in political ads because you're not popular even among your own base. And thus, you are an effective strategy. So if they can link other congressional candidates to you, That's a tactic that's effective. It's been shown to really actually have an impact. Your own party doesn't like you. And in fact, you acknowledged before that you're aware of one of the criticisms of your own constituents.
8: In my district, they call me a corporate pawn because my district is so
2: progressive. So she knows that we don't like her. And she knows that Republicans don't like her, so obviously it's going to be useful for Republicans to use her as a device to win congressional elections. That's the point. Simply saying that, oh, if you if you get rid of me, you'll appease Republicans. That doesn't matter. They don't care about you, Nancy. They're only using you because you're not great, and we don't like you. Now, furthermore, she implied that you know if Hillary Clinton had won, and there actually be a woman at the head of the table, you know, with the seat at the at the table, that she wouldn't have run for a leadership position. But what she's saying here presupposes that if she steps down that We would only get a male. And if she truly cares about that, what she can do is step down and endorse someone like Barbara Lee as her successor, because that's who a lot of progressives like myself are actually advocating for to replace Nancy Pelosi. She's someone who's been in Congress for decades, and she actually is very progressive. She has a strong anti-war voting record. So if this is truly about women having a seat at the table, then she would endorse Barbara Lee. And furthermore, you wouldn't be so dismissive of other women like Ocasio-Cortez. So we know that you're full of shit. you actually don't care about women in power at all. You only care about your own career. And another thing that she said that was outrageously hypocritical, I think it was the pinnacle of hypocrisy, uh, she states here, I have made some very powerful enemies. Is that so? Now, when she talks about these enemies, she's specifically talking about big money and special interests. Now, she said this Right after she bragged about selling out more than Republicans, because she said Republicans are afraid of me, quote, because I outraise them in the political arena. So, which is it? You're either outraising Republicans or you're making enemies out of special interests. You can't have it both ways. Either you're a sellout or. All the special interests are against you and you're not a sellout. But understand, she contradicts herself again. That wasn't just a one off statement. Uh, she states, Big money out there is against me. The more they make this point, though, the more money I raise. If you see their fundraising letters, they say, We have to stop her because she's just a force that is amassing the resources to win this election. And that is what I'll continue to do. This is absurd. Does she even hear what she's saying? She's speaking out of both sides of her mouth. On one hand, she's saying, you know, um, big money hates me. But on another hand, she's literally bragging about how much money she's able to raise and how she can outraise Republicans. And that's why they're afraid of her. I mean, this, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this. Is, is it technically true that right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson may not like her? sure but she's taking money from virtually every industry she claims to have made an enemy out of (laughs) so my, my question nancy is with enemies like this who needs friends if all those special interests are your enemies who you just bragged about being able to raise money from i mean do we see the problem here do we see the the just brazen hypocrisy here I mean this hearing her speak almost makes my head explode because she doesn't get it's not connecting how being an enemy of big money donors and selling out the most to big money donors those are mutually exclusive things you can't be both of those things at the same time nancy either you're a sellout or you're not she doesn't get it after she just bragged about what a prolific fundraiser she is and how she's able to outraise republicans constantly she's going to break the hypocrisy meter again in this next clip and talk about how problematic dark money is when she was asked what the democratic party stands for
0: there are a lot of people out there particularly Democrats, who are, who are saying the Democrats have no message. The Democrats, they don't know what they're for. They know they're against President Trump, but they don't know what they're for. Is that a true statement? And if it's not, what are Democrats for? Democrats are for
8: the people. Uh, for what does that mean? Democrats exactly? are for the people. It means we are for the people having lower health care costs reducing the cost of prescription drugs. Democrats are for bigger paychecks by building the infrastructure of America creating good paying jobs. Again, Democrats are for making government work uh, by reducing the role of big dark money in politics. All of these are connected because the culture of corruption cronyism and incompetence that is prevalent in this congress and this administration take uh, impedes the ability for us to raise the minimum wage to clean the air to reduce the cost of prescription drugs so we have to be we have unified in our message this came from the members and it is being uh, road tested now in august Uh, as we go forward. I'm very proud of David Cicilline, Sherry Bustos and Hakeem Jeffries, who honchoed all of this. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not that we don't know what we stand for, it's how do we convey the message. And every day we have a fight. What we have to do is brag about it more.
2: Now, I don't know if you missed it because it was subtle, but she directly tied dark money to Congress's inability to pass policies that the American people care about. She said it was due to cronyism, corruption and incompetence. But what's interesting is that as she denounces the dark money that Republicans receive, she's literally bragging about the dark money that she takes herself. And ironically, as she's listing off the policy ideas that the Democratic Party is supposedly in favor of, notice how she doesn't say something like Medicare for All. She just states access to healthcare is something that the party is advocating for. Now, why won't she say that she supports Medicare for All or that Democrats support Medicare for All? Well, it's specifically because she's taking dark money from health industry. Packs. So when she talks about dark money impeding Congress's ability to pass popular policies, she's right. But she isn't willing to admit that dark money also corrupts Democrats as well. And it's precisely why we no longer want her to be the leader. So she's speaking about this problem of dark money that plagues Republicans, all while not realizing dark money is preventing them from supporting policies that Americans overwhelmingly support, like Medicare for All. I mean, it's just, it, it's insane. I don't think there's ever been ever been a more hypocritical politician on the left than someone like Nancy Pelosi. This is outrageous. I honestly don't even know what to say. It's just, it's just laughable. Now, understand that whenever they come up with a new slogan, uh, what was the last time? Better jobs, better deals, some something idiotic like that. It sounded like the Papa John slogan. But this time, their slogan is for the people. Notice how whenever they coin a new phrase, it's always as vague as possible. What does for the people mean? There is, what, 7.4 billion humans on this earth? There's uh, more than 300 million Americans? I mean, which people are you for? There's a lot of people. You have to... You have to pick and choose which people you're in favor of. Are you in favor of working people or rich people? You can't be in favor of both simultaneously. It doesn't work that way. You have to choose which people you're in favor of. You can't just say, I'm for all people, because that means absolutely nothing. People like Nancy Pelosi, they remain intentionally vague because they want to pretend to be for average Americans while actually serving their donors behind closed doors. And she mentioned that they're testing out this slogan, and that, <laughs> that actually irritated me as well, because... They just don't know how to not be fake because they don't have a message. She doesn't have a message. You shouldn't have to focus group or test out slogans. Just talk to people. Talk to people. That's all you have to do. Talk to normal people. See what they want. And that's what you base your message off of. But they they have nothing. And it's precisely why Nancy Pelosi has got to go. Because so long as she's in power, so long as she is in a leadership position then it's going to embolden the right and Republicans will keep winning. And certainly, don't get it twisted, Chuck Schumer has got to go as well. Because as horrible as Nancy Pelosi is, Chuck Schumer, I think, is exponentially worse and more spineless. So, the reason why Republicans are able to win is because the Democratic Party is so painfully incompetent and so mind-numbingly, brazenly hypocritical that they they don't even see it. They don't see what we see when she speaks and how hypocritical she looks to simultaneously denounce Republican Party corruption but brag about the Democratic Party's corruption and how she's keeping them corrupt. (laughs) I don't know what to say. This party is a joke. Justice Democrat Rashida Tlaib is poised to replace John Conyers after she won her primary last Tuesday, and she's actually making quite a bit of headlines, namely because if she's elected, she'd be the first Muslim woman in Congress. Now, as corporate media brings her on and interviews her, they're trying to gauge what type of Democrat she's going to be exactly. Now, what's interesting is that they're learning not only how progressive she is, but just how outspoken she is as well because she was asked whether or not she would support Nancy Pelosi in the event she runs for a leadership position again and her answer was refreshingly honest when
0: you were elected uh, formally in November you will have a vote as part of the democratic caucus as to who will be the next democratic leader whether it be the Minority Leader or the speaker of the house will you vote for Nancy Pelosi probably not probably not
3: that's my answer no probably not why not Look, I think uh, for me, I need someone that, um, uh, again, is connected with uh, the different levels of poverty that's going on. The fact that there are structures and and barriers for working families in my district uh, that need to be dismantled. And supporting big banks and supporting efforts that I don't think put the people first uh, is troubling. And I need somebody that fully understands why I'm so passionate about those issues, why I'm so uh, eager uh, to to make sure their voices are heard. And at this point, even people back here, right here at home in Detroit, in the Metro Detroit area, uh, Mm -hmm. they don't feel like they're being heard. And Mm -hmm. I think that starts at the top with leadership.
0: Is she one of the people you're referring to as a Democratic sellout?
3: Look, I don't know. All I can tell you is mm. she doesn't speak about the issues that are important to the families of the 13th Congressional District, mm. and they are a priority for me. They're the ones who put me here. They're the ones who put faith in me, and I have to listen to them, and I have to make sure that I never back down and that I don't sell out personally. And if that person uh, that is in leadership is still okay to take away the transparency mm. requirements for big banks, uh, to making sure that my families are not being discriminated by uh, you know, health care uh, being discriminated for getting health care coverage, or more importantly these days, is about the fact that mm-hmm. half of my families don't own their own homes in the 13th congressional district because the discriminatory practices by big bank banks are still happening and no one is doing anything about it. This is happening right now on their watch, and mm-hmm. no one is talking about it. All they're doing is taking away. Uh, you know, look at Dodd Frank. I mean, look at what has been done just in the last 12 months in Congress. Mm-hmm. And again, that was done on specific people's watch and specific right. people. People's leadership, and that's something that I just can't forget.
2: So she actually makes a really powerful point about Nancy Pelosi being disconnected because Nancy Pelosi is, in fact, out of touch. Her net worth is what, more than a hundred million? Someone who has that much money can't possibly empathize with the struggle of ordinary Americans and how they have to live paycheck to paycheck, how they struggle to pay for their prescription drugs as the prices rise. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, she doesn't know what normal Americans are dealing with. So, I think that that's actually an excellent point to make against Nancy Pelosi, and really it's it's refreshing because even if it's obvious, what we all often focus on with regard to Nancy Pelosi is just how much of a corporate pawn she is, but the sheer fact that she's just super out of touch is really really important. We need someone who's going to lead the party that's supposed to represent working families to actually know what they're dealing with. And Nancy Pelosi, she just she has no clue what they're dealing with now when Rashida was asked whether or not she thought Nancy Pelosi was a sellout I was expecting you know kind of a dodge on that question because it's it's kind of difficult if you're going to be arriving to Congress you don't want to call the leader a sellout and pretty much screw yourself over, set yourself up for marginalization, you don't get any committee appointments. But I mean, she <laughs> she actually gave a surprising answer. I would have liked her to just call Nancy Pelosi a sellout, but I get that that's going to be awkward, given that she will be arriving to Congress. And she said, look, I don't know. All I can tell you is she doesn't speak about the issues that are important to the, to the families of the 13th district, and they're a priority for me. And that was actually a really great answer. Now, of course, we all know that Nancy Pelosi is, in fact, a sellout. I don't even think that's debatable. She often brags about how much money she raises, and she was on MSNBC, and in an interview with Jonathan Chait, she was talking about how she frequently is able to outraise Republicans, which is why they're so terrified of her. So, I mean, the fact that she's a sellout, it isn't even up for debate. Nancy Pelosi is the definition of a sellout, and I think she's the embodiment of everything that's wrong with American politics in general, and this culture of corruption that plagues Washington, D.C., and makes all of these politicians beholden to their corporate donors. But I like that she actually, she kind of left the door open. Would I have liked her to say, yes, Nancy Pelosi is a sellout, obviously. Of course, I would have liked that. But again, I get where she's coming from in her position, being an individual that will be going to Congress, trying not to make too many enemies. We all know that individuals in Congress, they're not too keen on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being so blunt in her criticism of them. So I do, I do get that she's trying to temper her response a little bit but Rashida actually returned to CNN the following week and the pundits at this point they kind of acknowledged that her comments kind of rubbed certain democratic party establishment figures the wrong way and she was asked to clarify her statements
4: specifically to Pelosi I mean those are pretty strong allegations right saying that yeah, she doesn't I mean, care about these people that she is- well
3: But this is before I got elected. Before I got elected, I have been critical of both Republicans and Democrats that removed the transparency requirements through Dodd-Frank. I mean, these are things that, to me, protect the working class families. These are things that I think are critical to ensuring that we feel like we have a seat at the table. And look, this is a new generation, a new era. This is time for a new approach to public so, service that so is so different what, than what we've had. I absolutely, what, but it's very important to know. I absolutely respected the leadership of mm-hmm. of Nancy, leader Nancy Pelosi. You should know that I have been so supportive of a number of things that she's done to not only elevate but women, you think it's but, time but also for a new
4: voice. I mean, you think it's it time for a it new is. voice? There's which, nothing wrong which,
3: by saying there's a new some, voice. Doesn't mean that I don't support. work that she's done
2: yeah so again what she's saying here makes perfect sense and i think that rashida was going out of her way to compliment nancy pelosi and embed a compliment in every single sentence of her criticism of nancy pelosi but you really don't even have to do that because nancy pelosi i mean her record speaks for itself. Under her leadership, the Democratic Party has been decimated. And that's a fact that we all have to acknowledge, and we have to acknowledge that that fact has empowered the Republican Party, undoubtedly. Now, that's not to say that Nancy Pelosi hasn't done some good things. Yes, I think most progressives will, in fact, acknowledge that, but that's just not enough overall. Doing some good things isn't enough for how much work needs to be done in order to save the working class. And furthermore, in areas where Nancy Pelosi has actually taken us a step forward, overall, she's taken the party at large multiple steps backwards because she's raised so much corporate cash for herself and for the party that they don't even know how to govern or function without it. And that's hurt the party, because what voter wants to get out and vote for someone who very clearly isn't looking out for them, who very clearly is doing nothing more than trying to appease their corporate donors and looking out for their own career. Nancy Pelosi isn't just a corporate pawn, but she made the party become even more dependent on these large multinational corporations and their contributions. Now, it's not just Nancy Pelosi, because this is kind of the consequence of Citizens United and McCutcheon, but it still remains that Nancy Pelosi... In raising large sums of money from the most despicable special interests in the country, from virtually every special interest in the country with the exception of maybe, what, the gun lobby, it's still making the entire party a bunch of pro-corporate zombies. Now, CNN actually asked Rashida to respond to Nancy Pelosi's defense of herself, and this is what she had to say.
4: Let me play what she said over the weekend, defending herself, because your calls for new leadership are similar to what some Republicans, including the president, are saying, you know, that it's helpful to them. Uh, They're saying, uh, you know, keep Nancy Pelosi in in power and, you know, in leadership because that hurts the Democrats, which helps us. So here's how Pelosi defended herself over the weekend.
8: I do not think our opponents should select the leaders of our party. The Republicans are spending millions, tens of millions of dollars against me because they're afraid of me, because I outraise them in, in the political arena, because I outsmart them at the negotiating table, and because I'm a woman who is going to be a seat at that table.
3: Do
4: you think she has a point in this warning uh, to Democrats?
3: I don't know if it's a warning to Democrats as much as to the political culture that's in, in Washington, D.C. Look, I come from a district that doesn't feel like they've been heard by Congress. Mm-hmm. It has overwhelmingly uh, been ignored on a number of fronts. I have a, a city uh, outside of Detroit, I have 12 different communities, that doesn't even have a school district. Poppy mm-hmm. I have areas where th- literally the environmental issue is the core of the fact that they are not able to have a right to breathe clean air I mean mm-hmm. one of five children have asthma I have another area in my district that you look, turn around the corner you see more poverty you see more decay and so what I'm telling you is that we don't feel like we have a seat at the table and they are priority to me and I am going to go there, and I said probably not because I want to make sure that they have a voice in the leader that's going to run uh, the United States Congress. Do you, and do that you is you right that, to be able to you, speak on their behalf and to say? And you
4: have spoken about people you call Democratic sellouts that you think, frankly, yeah. don't care about the people you've just uh, elaborated on. Is Nancy not, don't Pelosi care as, much as disconnected as Is Nancy Poppy? Pelosi a, a, a Democratic sellout in your mind? Is she, is she disconnected from those
3: people?
2: I think so. So, that was actually a really great response, because what Nancy Pelosi is saying is that she's an asset to the party because she's such a prolific fundraiser. But what Rashida is pointing out is, no, the fact that she's such a prolific fundraiser, that's the problem, because that's corruption. That fundraising is shifting the aggregate party's focus away from the working class and onto the donor class and... Nancy Pelosi is facilitating this shift even further. She's accelerating it. And Nancy Pelosi is a conduit for that corruption. And that's precisely the reason why she needs to go. Now, Rashida, again, wouldn't directly call Nancy Pelosi a sellout. She did say that she's disconnected, which is true. But Rashida, why is she disconnected? because she's a sellout. Now, again, I I don't want to be too hard on Rashida because I do get that she doesn't want to go to Congress making too too many enemies. But at the same time, you know, part of me thinks that you're going to already be marginalized and ostracized when you get to Congress anyway because you're not taking corporate money and because you're very progressive. So, I mean, don't be afraid. You don't have to lace everything you say that's a constructive criticism about the party in a compliment, You can be more direct, and I think that, you know, these newer voices in Congress like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, their voices are very important because for too long, the Democratic Party establishment, they've been able to set the narrative. And if you question whether or not, you know, Nancy Pelosi is a sellout, you're sexist, or whether, you know, other politicians are actually looking out for you, then you're just emboldening the Republican Party, when in actuality, our criticisms they're substantive. We're criticizing the Democratic Party because we live in a two-party system effectively, and one of those parties at least needs to be somewhat liberal. And at this point, we have basically two right-wing parties. One is centrist to center-right, the Democrats, and one is just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They're right-wing extremists. So all we're trying to do is facilitate a shift of the Overton window and make the Democratic Party just a little bit more liberal. And these are criticisms that the Democratic Party doesn't want to hear, but they desperately need to hear. So I definitely am liking what I see of Rashida Tlaib. I haven't had her on my show, but, you know, the first impression that I've had of her has been fairly positive, And I'm really excited to see this new generation of progressives sweep Congress because, man, we definitely need some new voices. Less than a week after learning about a new study that warned of a runaway global warming effect, Chairman Tom Perez announced a new rule in order to reverse the DNC's two-month ban on fossil fuel contributions. And guess what? the DNC adopted it. So as Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams reports, just two months after the Democratic National Committee was celebrated by environmentalists for banning donations from fossil fuel companies, it voted 30-2 to on Friday to adopt a resolution from Chair Tom Perez that critics said effectively reverses the ban and represents an absolute failure by the DNC. As climate reporter Kate Arnoff outlined in a series of tweets, Perez's resolution is premised on the party's support for unions, but ultimately will enable fossil fuel executives to use their money to try to influence Democrats. The unanimously approved original resolution, which requires the DNC to reject corporate PAC contributions from the fossil fuel industry, was spearheaded by Christine Pelosi, the daughter of Democratic House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and a member of the DNC's executive committee. Christine Pelosi tried Friday to pressure the committee to remove the Language in Perez's resolution, which undermines the ban on corporate PAC donations, but her proposal was voted down 28 to 4. And in a tweet, she later explained, to be clear, DNC staff and officers never consulted me on language to reverse my resolution banning corporate fossil fuel PAC money, and now they said they have to keep the resolution as is because of all the work we did. Four yes votes, 28 no votes, so my motion to ban PAC money fails. So understand that the DNC finally does something praiseworthy and we give them credit where it's due and... Two months later they reverse it why because it's likely the case that when they voted on this ban for corporate PAC money from fossil fuel companies they immediately received a lot of pressure from these companies that do want to donate to the democratic party and the dnc specifically and of course because tom perez is a corporate tool he immediately caved to that pressure now it's the case that Democrats in general, they take less money from the fossil fuel industry than Republicans, but Jenk Uger made this point on TYT, and it's a great point. The reason why they still give money to Democrats is because they're trying to buy complacency, even if it's the case that they won't be able to get Democrats and DNC members in particular to lie about climate change being a hoax as they get Republicans to do quite frequently, it still disincentivizes Democrats from taking any sort of action whatsoever because if they're giving them money and Democrats, the DNC in particular, like that money, then they know that they will lose out on said money if they choose to speak out and take action against climate change and actually try to curtail the power exerted over our government by these fossil fuel companies. So really, This is absolutely ridiculous, and it's quite disgusting, to be frank, because, I mean, at a time when we don't know what's going to happen with the human species as a result of our negligence with regard to climate change, we should be doing everything in our power to curtail the fossil fuel industry's influence. But Tom Perez spearheaded this effort, and he got what he wanted. Now, the DNC spokesperson contends that this reversal was all done... At the behest of workers, and it wasn't done because they want to be more corrupt. And as Kate Aronoff of The Intercept explains, DNC spokesperson Zotel Hinojosa said the decision was made after hearing concerns from Labor that this was an attack on workers. This resolution acknowledges the generous contributions of workers, including those in energy, who organize and donate to Democratic candidates. And only an idiot would buy that excuse, because that's all it is. It's an excuse. What this is about is allowing fossil fuel companies to donate unlimited sums of dark money through PACs. That's what this is about. And even if it's the case that they got some union leaders to come out against this ban, well, in reality, we all know that this was about corruption and not workers. So, in effect, the DNC just used organized labor as an excuse to preserve the right of fossil fuel corporations to freely donate and peddle influence within the Democratic Party. Labor higher-ups may well have strong-armed Perez into writing the resolution, but it's also a convenient cover for some Democrats to continue courting relationships with fossil fuel donors who, suffice to say, likely aren't the hard-scrabble fossil fuel workers Perez proposal references so tom perez did this because he's nothing more than a corporate tool he's nothing more than a conduit with which corporate influence flows from outside to within the dnc that's all this is about and he's going to go on cable news if they even decide to press him on this and he'll cite that bullshit excuse that we did this for workers, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't harm workers, and we, we listened to the industry, we listened to workers, we listened to union leaders, and we decided to take their advice and reverse this ban on fossil fuel contributions. And he might even deny that this effectively reverses the ban on fossil fuel contributions he might deny that because these corporate tools they always try to word things in a way that gives them enough wiggle room to try to deflect but we all know what this is about tom perez is a corporate tool he's shown that time and time and time again so, because he continuously spits in our faces, here's what we need to do. We need to sign the petition to get Tom Perez removed and to call on him to resign, and this petition now has the support of 10,000 individuals who believe he is not fit to serve at the head of the DNC. So, um, this honestly isn't surprising, but I am a little bit surprised, to be honest, that they reversed this ban that quickly, because you'd think that they try to do something this sleazy you know um maybe not that fast right i mean just 2 months after they Pass this ban on fossil fuel contributions. You'd want to wait if you're trying not to, you know, rouse suspicion. But Tom Perez doesn't give a damn. He's shameless. And yet he'll go on corporate media with a big, huge smile on his face and he'll do his little thumb pointing thing. And um, he'll pretend like he's this nice guy and he's just looking out for the workers and, you know, the labor unions when in actuality, he's a corporate tool. He's a puppet. And that's all he's ever going to be. So since he can't represent us, We've got to get his ass out of the DNC, sign the petition. It may not have an effect, but at least make your voice heard at a minimum. At the Netroots Nation conference in New Orleans, Cory Booker the Corporate Hooker posed for a photo while holding a sign that states from Palestine to Mexico all the walls have got to go. Now, That sign is perhaps the least controversial thing ever for a so-called liberal politician to do, but nonetheless, he was still criticized for it. There were individuals on the right who said that him holding up the sign was anti-Semitic, Because, of course, any criticism of Israel, any advocacy for Palestinian human rights, it's all anti-Semitic if you're a right-winger or even a left-winger in some instances. But he was attacked for it. Um, And what did he do? Did he hold strong? Did he say, no, I'm going to stand up for Palestinian human rights. I don't care what you say because it's the right thing to do. And I'm going to have the courage to speak out on their behalf since they don't have a voice. Well, of course, he didn't say that. He backed away from the sign, and his staff actually issued a statement almost immediately once the image surfaced online. And as Zaid Jalani of The Intercept reports, it seemed as though Booker's choice to enthusiastically pose with the pro Palestine sign might be part and parcel of his move to the left. But within hours, his campaign disavowed the whole thing. His spokesperson, Jeff Geertz, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency that Booker was simply snapping photos with fans and that he had. no idea what the sign actually read. Just before delivering a speech in New Orleans, Senator Booker was approached by dozens of people for photos, Geertz told JTA. In one instance, amid the rush, he was posing for a photo and was past the sign to hold. He didn't have time to read the sign, and from his cursory glance, he thought it was talking about Mexico, and didn't realize it had anything to do with Israel. Geertz went on to defend the wall in question. The separation barrier Israel has erected in the West Bank... Booker hopes for a day when there will be no need for security barriers in the state of Israel, but while active terrorist organizations threaten the safety of the people living in Israel, security borders are unfortunate but necessary to protect human lives, he said. Geert's statement echoes the pro-wall rationale used by the Israeli government, but that reasoning ignores the fact that the barrier extends far into Palestinian territory, providing Israel an opportunity to continue to expand settlements. The international human rights community's position on the wall reflects leftist critiques that are rooted in an objection to Israel's choice to build on Palestinian land and displace Palestinian people, not an objection to Israel protecting itself. Even former President George W. Bush, no left-winger, was initially quite critical of the barrier. It is very difficult to develop confidence between the Palestinians and Israel with the wall snaking through the West Bank, he said. Later, he backed down on his criticism when the Israeli government pressed forward. Booker's disavowal, then stung to those on the left who saw the photograph as evidence of progress even while it assured those whose politics more closely aligns with the state of Israel it was especially frustrating given how unlikely the excuse seemed in light of the context of the event so do i buy his excuse that he didn't read the sign and he just kind of had this cursory glance and thought it was about the wall on our southern border no i don't because for someone as focused group driven as Cory Booker, he's not just going to willy-nilly hold up any sign that someone gives him. He's going to read it thoroughly before he holds it up because, as he'd know, he could be inadvertently endorsing something that he disagrees with, so he probably read the sign and seeing that it wasn't controversial because it's not. He held it up, and once he got criticism, then he decided to backtrack. But it really shows that he has no spine whatsoever. What a coward! This guy is. In speaking out against a wall built in Palestinian territory, that takes zero courage whatsoever. You're not brave to denounce it. It's just common sense. The UN Security Council has said that Israel's ongoing occupation of Palestine constitutes a flagrant violation of international law. That's the language that they used. But yet, He can't even condemn something that's common sense that everyone else in the world sees. What a coward! this guy is. He has no political courage whatsoever. In fact, I want to read to you what the UN Security Council said about Israel's occupation of Palestine. In its resolution 2-3-4 from 2016, the Security Council reaffirmed that the establishment by Israel of settlements in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967, including East Jerusalem, had no legal validity and constituted a flagrant violation of under international law, and a major obstacle to the achievement of the two-state solution and a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace. This isn't controversial, Corey. The fact that you are unwilling to even speak out in favor of Palestinian human rights on the most basic level, on the most common sense level, it shows that you are nothing more than a coward and you have no spine and you lack the courage needed To be president we all know that he wants to run in 2020 and he's doing everything in his power to not offend anyone right he's trying to appease progressives and also his corporate donors and what he did to kind of give progressives the nod who care about palestinian human rights with regard to aipac is he uh the article from the intercept it talks about how he chose not to attend some type of aipac event or speak there but the article also states that afterwards representatives from AIPAC actually spoke with him privately in his office, which may be worse because if you're not at this public event, then we can't tell what you're saying. But, you know, behind closed doors, you could be promising them everything. You could be promising to never speak out in favor of Palestinian human rights again, and we wouldn't know about it. So, it's actually probably better for him to attend this uh, forum at AIPAC and make a public speech so we can at least know what he's saying. So, it's on the record. But this guy is a coward. But to anyone who's been following Cory Booker, this isn't surprising at all. It's just really embarrassing that someone who's supposed to be part of a party that supposedly represents human rights, that he can't even hold up a sign that advocates for Palestinian human rights in the most minimal sense ever. I mean, it's not a controversial sign, but if you're Cory Booker, you gotta run away from that as well, because, you know, God forbid you actually take a stand on anything. If you only tune into cable news, then you'd likely have no idea that Saudi Arabia is currently carrying out a genocide in Yemen with our weapons and our government's approval. Now they've been committing atrocities there for quite some time, numerous atrocities on a daily basis, but after they decided to bomb a school bus... They're finally getting some much-deserved media criticism. As BBC News explains, at least 29 children have been killed and 30 wounded in a Saudi-led coalition airstrike in Yemen, the International Committee of the Red Cross says. The children were traveling on a bus that was hit at a market in Dayan in the northern province of Sara. The health ministry, run by the rebel Houthi movement, put the death toll at 43 and said 61 people were wounded. The coalition, which is backing Yemen's government in a war with the Houthis, said its actions were legitimate. It insists it never deliberately targets civilians, but human rights groups have accused it of bombing markets, schools, hospitals, and residential areas. And this story in particular is especially disturbing because they, they targeted children. But really, it's just one of numerous examples of the atrocities that continue to occur in Yemen that have been completely ignored by the mainstream media. This isn't this isn't new. It's been happening, but nobody is talking about it. Now as Adam Johnson of Fair Rights for Truth Dig it's actually been more than a year since MSNBC even mentioned Yemen. He explains, On July 2nd, a year had passed since the cable network's last segment mentioning U.S. participation in the war on Yemen, which has killed an excess of 15,000 people and resulted in over a million cases of cholera. The U.S. is backing a Saudi-led bombing campaign with intelligence refueling, political cover, military hardware, and as of March, ground troops. All of this is happening, and the so-called liberal news network that's supposed to represent the left, that's supposed to be the liberal equivalent or Democratic Party equivalent of Fox News, it's not even mentioning these things. This is a 24-hour news network, and they couldn't even find two minutes of any one day for the past year to dedicate to Yemen, to inform their viewers, about the atrocities Saudi Arabia is committing with our weapons and approval. they failed us. The mainstream media has absolutely failed us. They've failed the American people and they've failed the people of Yemen. They're supposed to be informing us about these things. That's their job. And they haven't been doing their job. But thankfully this week, after we got the report of them bombing a school bus and killing 29 children, finally, one MSNBC host decided to cover it briefly, Chris Hayes. And he actually did a surprisingly thorough job. If I were to
1: stand here on this broadcast and tell you that a foreign power had bombed a school bus full of American children, there would be no bigger story. We would be in a state of panic, horror, and mourning, and almost certainly immediate war. In fact, the thought experiment doesn't even work because if that had happened, you wouldn't need me to tell you about it at 8.45. You'd know minutes after it happened. Well, today, a foreign power did bomb a school bus full of children, only it was Yemeni children. And the Saudi-led coalition that did that bombing is backed by us, by the United States. The images you're about to see are extremely disturbing. And it's because a school bus bombed in a crowded market was left utterly destroyed, resulting in the deaths of at least 50 people, and most of them are children and injuries scores more. According to the authorities in the Houthi-governed Sana'a region, those are the rebels who are fighting that war in Yemen, the Red Cross says its medical team has received the bodies of 29 kids, all under 15 years old, and is treating dozens more injured children and adults. This attack is part of a U.S.-backed, Saudi-led war in Yemen, and it began during the Obama administration. It has intensified Under the Trump administration, it has prompted what NGOs call the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world. And I quote here with indiscriminate and disproportionate attacks on civilians, denial of access to humanitarian aid and the use of starvation as a weapon of war. Now, the horror of this specific attack prompted a howl of outrage from Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. He wrote, U.S. bombs, U.S. targeting, U.S. mid air support, and we just bombed a school bus. The Saudi UAE U.S. bombing campaign is getting more re- reckless, killing more civilians, and strengthening terrorists inside Yemen. We need to end this now. He's right. Our government, our public dollars are paying to kill Yemeni children, and it's our government and our representatives that can
2: stop it that was that was great i want to see more of this from chris hayes because he's he's proving to us that he actually has the potential to do a good job i mean he actually covered um israel killing palestinian protesters who were peaceful back when trump decided to move the u.s embassy to jerusalem he did a good job covering that and now he's showing us again that he does have the potential the question is whether or not he has the will to keep the pressure on here and understand what a ridiculous time we're living in. It's actually news when mainstream media does their job and covers the news that they're supposed to be covering. Media is truly a powerful force. They have the ability to set the agenda and shape narratives. Can you imagine the profound impact they'd have if they talked about Yemen just half as much as they talked about Russia, it would literally save lives because Americans would start to become informed and ask questions and begin to exert pressure on government and the White House and Congress. They'd be forced to speak up and start taking action. But because mainstream media prioritizes other things that are less important, like Stormy Daniels, like Russia, well, what happens? politicians are essentially forced to pursue what they think Americans care about. And that's always dictated by the mainstream media due to their agenda-setting ability. This is really, it's concerning that MSNBC hasn't talked about this for a year. And Chris Hayes, if he knows how important this is, if he did such a fantastic job covering it, credit where it's due, You've got to talk about it more. It we've seen that certain hosts have the ability to set a standard that other pundits have to compete with. Since Rachel Maddow saw a surge in ratings when she started focusing nonstop on Russia, what happened? Other news hosts started to talk about Russia more frequently. So if if Chris Hayes can focus on Yemen and create the standard he alone can have such a huge fundamental impact. But, I mean, he hasn't talked about it up until recently. So, this is, this is one of those stories where even if we're talking about it, if democracy now is covering it, if the real news and TYT are talking about this, well, it doesn't really matter because some people exclusively watch mainstream media And if you exclusively watch mainstream media, if you go to an airport and CNN is on, I mean, that is essentially what's going to dictate the level of salience certain political issues have. So, I mean, they've got to cover this more. I'm glad that Chris Hayes felt compelled and convicted and wanted to cover it, but we need to see more of this. There needs to be more coverage of the United States and what they're doing abroad, while we're all not looking and paying attention because it's certainly morally reprehensible to say the least and it's not going to stop unless people actually start to care but before they can even care they've got to know about it and that responsibility falls on mainstream media and they're just they failed us here Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Special shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. As usual, you guys are absolutely amazing. You help the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. I will see you all next week on the program. Take care.